for a very Christian audience. <laughs> I didn't really expect any hands up. But I am awful, awful at poker. I've only really played with mates, and we've only really put potato chips rather than real chips on the line. Uh, but even with such little stakes, I am still awful at the game. You know, I just give too much away, right? When I really have a great, when I get a really great hand, uh, people know immediately, right? I get very excited. I slip out a grin. I play differently. I'm upping the stakes. I'm very brave in that way. When I have an awful hand, people know straight away too, because I'm an easy read, right? I make an awful poker player. Because the game of poker is all about not giving away too much, isn't it? To to be unreadable, to have a poker face, to have unreadable emotions, unreadable strategies. Poker is all about being unknowable, wanting people to second guess and be uncertain of the cards that you have and the game that you're playing. The better you are at being unknowable, the better you probably are at the game. Now, a question for us this morning. Is God like an excellent poker player? Is God like an excellent poker player? In that, is he unknowable? If I were to survey our country, I reckon for most people, they would say, yes, God is unknowable. Right? I'm not just talking about atheists necessarily. Right? Even those who would consider themselves spiritual, religious, they would probably think that God is unknowable. Right? That God is some sort of mystical, unknowable force, some higher being that is behind everything that exists. Powerful? Yes. Real? Yes. But knowable? Probably not. There's actually a whole thought kind of built from this uh, in their 17th and 18th century called deism. Right? The picture most often used to explain deism is that God, or the supreme being, he's like a, a master clockmaker who winds up the universe like a grandfather clock and then steps back and just leaves the universe to run on its own. Right? See, in deism, we know there's a supreme being, we know God exists because there is logic and rationality built into our universe. But that's where deism stops. Because God, yes, exists, but God can't be known because God doesn't make himself known. Friends, the Bible, as we've already heard this morning, couldn't disagree with that thinking more. The psalm we're exploring today that Sally read out for us answers whether God can be known actually in the clearest of terms. That God, the one true God, desires to be known. He desires to be known by you. And so if you're here today, if you're wondering, exploring whether you can know God in your life, hear this wonderful news. Not only is the answer to that question yes, but God actually wants you to know him. And our our psalm, our song, our poem of worship unpacks how. Before we go any further, let me commit this time to God in prayer. Please pray with me. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we thank you for this time now where we can hear from your very word. Thank you that you are not a code that needs to be broken, but that you freely, gloriously, and generously reveal who you are to us, that we might know you personally, love you deeply, and treasure you above all things. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, We're going to begin with our first point, uh, that God reveals himself through the silent word of creation. God reveals himself through the silent word of creation. The psalmist begins his song, Looking to the natural world, 
Right? By looking to the world around us, at the skies, the heavens above, at the stars, the moon, the sun. It's a very well-known verse, verse 1. The heavens, we read, declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. If you're looking at the natural world, the heavens and the skies are a great place to start, aren't they? Right? If you have an aisle seat on a plane, as you take off and head, into, head up into the sky, you have these remarkable views of the clouds and of the picturesque blue sky. The glory of the moon against a dark night sky, whether it's a full moon or the thinnest of presence, with stars glistening all around, can make you feel so, so small. Even a sunrise, the sun breaks over the horizon. It's a majestic sight to behold. Right? See, the skies, the heavens, nature really has the ability to amaze, doesn't it? Nature can move us. It can fill us with wonder. It can, it can take your breath away at times. It can be a source of calm and perspective. Nature, actually, can even profoundly change us. Uh, in 2018, uh, the National Geographic interviewed a number of people who had seen the Earth from space. And there was a subheading to the article that the majesty of our planet can be difficult to describe. But these astronauts, they'll try. Uh, in, the, in the article, in the magazine, one of the astronauts was so gobsmacked by the sight of the oceans and its colors that he began searching for new words, new vocab, just to describe all the different shades of blue that he saw. Another said that he never got tired at looking at the earth from space and said he wouldn't want to be in the same room with someone who could get tired of looking at that. Since coming back, these astronauts have branched into things like fine art to illustrate better what they've seen. Some have moved towards animal conservation efforts. Others have begun coalitions to think about balancing ecological health and human needs. Right? What's common across all the interviews is that the advances of space discovery and the tech developments behind it to understand nature better have not made these astronauts indifferent to the world. It's made them grow more fascinated, more awestruck. Right? These astronauts have not come back dulled by their experience. All of them are, have come back astounded, transformed, and they see the world completely differently. Now, at the same time, we've also learned that all these heavenly beings, they're in some way just compositions of gas, light, shadow, rock, liquid, and so forth. See, why do the heavens, the skies, nature have the ability to impact, to move, to even change us like a piece of music or art? See, the psalmist would answer with something along these lines. See, nature has the capacity to affect deeply because nature is great art. Painted and composed by the greatest artist of all time. See, if art and music composed by humans have the potential to move us, how much more art composed by God? For the psalmist, though, nature doesn't only move him like cosmic works of art. He goes a step further. For the psalmist, nature isn't just something to look at. Nature speaks. Right? Read 19 verse 1 again. What does it say? What do the skies and heavens declare? The glory of God. What do they proclaim? The work of His hands. And they continuously declare and proclaim. In verse 2, the speech is day after day, night after night. Right? What's the psalmist saying? That nature does not stop speaking. It doesn't stop declaring. It doesn't stop proclaiming. And it's saying, hey, we aren't some accident. We were crafted beautifully. We were fashioned purposefully. We are products of immense imagination and wonderful creativity. We are works of art created by an artist who has no equal. 
At one level, it makes sense that nature speaks and reveals something about its maker. This is just how a great artist reveals something about themselves in their work, right? If you, art experts will look at a piece of, uh, like a painting, and they'll say, hey, this artwork has the characteristics of this particular artist. Psalm 19 tells us, hey, all things in the universe show and reveal something of God. Calvin, a 14th century theologian, puts it wonderfully like this. The acts of creation were like God putting on his outside clothes in order that we might see who he is, what he is like, and what he has done. But is that all we need to know God? Is that all we need to know God? If we just spend enough time being gobsmacked by creation, hearing creation. Actually, I remember at Bible college, one of the lectures talking about creation, the lecturer got us to go outside to these wonderful creator gardens and just lie in the grass for 15 minutes and just look. That was a very interesting exercise. Um, is that all we need to do to know God? Well, of course that can't be it, right? Because as impressive as nature is, there are shortcomings, isn't it? Aren't there? If you only rely on nature to know God. Let me give you three shortcomings briefly. The first shortcoming is that the speech of creation is silent, right? It's silent. We say, see that in verse 3. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound, we read, is heard from them. Right? The, the, the words of creation are silent. We're all pretty familiar with nonverbal communication, aren't we? Gestures, actions, signs. We use it all the time. Uh, and while it can be effective and can amplify what you're trying to say, uh, it's also limiting in what it can say at the same time, can't it? For example, if I were to do this action... What does that mean? What does that mean? Sorry? It's okay. Yeah, good. It's okay. Um, now, I think, yeah, it's okay. I think that's true here in Australia. Uh, if you were to do this in Brazil or in Russia, apparently this sign is a sign of sexual assault. If you were to do this in Tunisia, this is an insult. It means you're worthless. Right? In Japan, if you were to do this, this means money. There you go. What about this? What does this mean? Good, right? I agree. Good. Yep. Yep. Now, if you were to do this in the Middle East, apparently this is a highly offensive version of a thumbs down. Uh, in Greece, apparently this is the equivalent of uh, the, the middle finger. Now, this is all from a quick Google search, so this could be completely wrong. Uh, but the point remains, right? Nonverbal silent speech, you can misinterpret it. Yeah? Depending on the context, depending on where you are, you can misinterpret it. See, the silent speech of creation is like that too. It can be easily misinterpreted. And we see that all the time. People look at the same thing. We might look at the, the glory of the heavens and they will, they will ascribe something else to it than someone else will. As impressive as nature is, I think we can say that it's only even in the most occasional of moments that we are even aware of how stunning it is. Right? We can ignore it most of the time in our lives too. Not only can we misinterpret it, we can ignore it as well. Here's another reason why, this, why the speech of creation is, um, is we can't rely on it fully. It's that it's impersonal. Yeah, it's impersonal. The psalmist uses two words, two different words for God in the psalm. In verses 1 to 6, he uses the word translated to God, right? which is the most generic term for God that you can possibly have. And then from verse 7 onwards, for the rest of the psalm, he uses the word Lord. Lord or Yahweh, which is the personal name of God, that God revealed to the prophet Moses before the formation of Israel as a nation. 
And so it's a bit, it'd be a bit like describing me as a man on one hand and Dom. Right? Both are true. And yet they both reveal something different, right? One is general man. One is personal, my name. See, what's the psalm doing? He's making, actually, in this psalm, a theological point. See, the speech that pours forth from nature, if it's interpreted correctly, if it is properly heard, if it's not ignored, even still, it doesn't reveal God relationally and personally. It's just generic. You learn something, but it's incomplete. On its own, it's insufficient. The third reason is the speech of creation. Not only silent, not only is it impersonal, it's also imperfect. It's tainted by imperfection. The psalmist doesn't go here, but uh, we see this elsewhere in Scripture, that if nature and creation are all we look at to know God, we'll see imperfection because nature, while created by God, is also tainted by sin. In nature, we see decay. In nature, we see destruction. In nature, we see death, suffering, and loss. That is not of God. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans describes creation as being subjected to frustration. That it needs liberation from decay. And that it is even groaning now in anticipation of that liberation. So let me put this all together, right? Nature, it declares and makes God known. We can know God through nature, but it is a silent, impersonal, and imperfect voice. We need more. So as we come to our second point... We need His perfect Word. Yeah, God reveals Himself through His perfect Word. Now, the book of Psalms is a collection of songs and poems, and so sometimes to, to dig into it properly, we need to do some poetry digging. And so we're going to do a little bit this morning. Ready? Now, um, the poetry in these verses shifts pretty significantly. Right? In the first six verses, we go from this free-flowing, uh, picturesque pattern and then in verses 7 to 9, we go to almost this constant rhythmic pattern. Right? In fact, if you look closely, verses 7 to 9, uh, you'll notice that they're structured exactly the same. Have a look at me at the table there. Right? Each line of the poetry begins with something about the instructions of God. Right? That's the second column to the left. Right? You've got statutes, you've got precepts, you've got commands, you've got fear of the Lord, you've got decrees. Then, the next column next to it, you've got an adjective about it. Right? It's perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, firm. And then lastly, you have a benefit from Yahweh's instruction. It refreshes the soul, makes wise the simple, gives joy to the heart, light to the eyes, and so on and so forth. And so you go from the first uh, six verses from this loose, free-flowing structure and rhythm to now this repeated structure and rhythm in the next three verses. Uh, Why does the author do this? Uh, The shift in poetry isn't just for some contrast. Again, the writer, I think, is making a theological point. What is that? That... While nature proclaims and declares the glory of God, it is, as we've already said, at best, fuzzy, unclear, free for all. It's impersonal, it's silent, it's imperfect. But as we turn to God's instructions, we get a clear, structured, perfect view of Him. Through His Word, therefore, we can know God deeply. We can know God clearly. We don't just know the creator God of nature. By his instructions, we can know the personal Yahweh. Yahweh's instructions are perfect, unlike the silent voice of nature. God has clearly revealed himself to his people. He hasn't left us on our own to figure him out through peering into trees and caves. He's given us all these things 
for our benefit. Now, when this song was first sung uh, by the ancient Israelites, uh, Yahweh's perfect instructions would have come, they would have thought when they saw, sung this psalm, just at the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we might look at books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy as simply just rules and laws to abide by. But for the ancient Israelites, these were Yahweh's instructions to provide refreshment, joy, and light to the eyes. It was Yahweh's instruction to them into right and wise living. And so a quick point of application, perhaps for those of us who read the New Testament and prefer that to the Old, who perhaps reduce the Old Testament to be burdensome and out of date, I think we need to unlearn some of that and begin to read and see the Old Testament the way the psalmist did, as actually instruction for the people of God into right and wise living in relationship with him. Now, of course, for us, not only this doesn't just apply to the first five books of the Bible, this applies to the rest of the Bible too, to the rest of Scripture. So all of Scripture now is holy and right, is for holy and right living for those who belong to God. And so we see God clearly and deeply by what he reveals through all of Scripture. And so the same descriptions now extends everywhere. And so the bigger point of application for us, obviously, must be this. If God makes himself known most clearly through the pages of Scripture, if his perfect word is how we learn to live rightly and wisely in relationship with him, and it shows us what that looks like, if his words truly refresh the soul, make wise the simple, give joy to the heart and light to the eyes, then how is God's word integrated into the rhythms and routines of your life? Do you have a plan in place for 2024? Being in God's word might mean you need to get creative. I know a lot of you are very, very busy. You might need to get creative. Being in God's word will probably mean you need to plan. It will mean you'll need to schedule. Can I say it will definitely mean being part of communities where you are opening God's word together. And so if you are, um, haven't joined a community group of ours before, maybe indicating your interest would be a great thing to do. Right? We've got plenty of days and options and locations to choose from, I think, this year. Maybe have a conversation with someone here about reading God's word together. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Packer, says this. See, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something that catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Please don't hear this as a grumble from the front to just read your Bible. It is through God's perfect word that this goal becomes reality most clearly. This is how God has chosen, first and foremost, how you will meet and encounter him. And if that's really what's going on when you open this book, well, don't shortchange your life and your soul by disregarding it. And so how we therefore come to God's word and instruction, that, well, that matters a great deal then, doesn't it? Our posture towards it matters a great deal. And so the psalmist um, uh, has a great deal, again, to show us as we come to our third point, the searching prayer of the hearer. Yeah, the searching prayer of the hearer. Let's read from verse 10. From verse 10. 
They, as in God's instruction, are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist looks at God's word, God's instructions, like he did with the sun back in verse 6. That nothing is deprived of its warmth and heat. Everything is, is exposed by it. And so after reflecting on God's perfect word, he now prays, God, would you similarly expose me completely? Would your word, he prays, expose and do its illuminating work in my life? Would the light of your instruction uncover what needs to be uncovered? Even my hidden faults, even those that I can't discern, would you forgive those? Even my willful sins, those done by decision and choice, would they not rule over him? He prays that he might be completely exposed in the way the sun leaves nothing deprived in order that he would be blameless. I don't know how you feel about that prayer, but if I'm being honest about that prayer, I'm in two minds about praying something like that. Because on the one hand, I do want God to do his work in me, but it'd be through gritted teeth, let's be honest. Being illumined, being exposed by God's instruction, becoming more holy, I know it's necessary as a believer, but it just doesn't sound like a particularly enjoyable experience. The psalmist disagrees. Right? In verse 10, how does he see God's word? as more precious to him than even the most pure of gold. Sweeter than him, for him than even the purest of honey. Now, that's a weird thing to talk about God's instructions. I get that if he was talking about God's mercies, right? Maybe something of his character, like precious, sweet. But his instructions? How on earth do we begin to see God's instructions like that? Well, the key, I believe, is the psalmist sees God, and you see it in the prayer, as his rock and his redeemer. As his rock and his redeemer. See, when the ancient people of God originally sung this song as they prayed this prayer, they're, they're, I don't know if you noticed, there are little italics at the top of the psalm. And they tell us that as they sung this song, they thought back to David, Israel's greatest king, as they sung it. God was certainly King David's rock and redeemer. If you read the stories, we, we, we would know, we looked at it only last year, he was chosen by God. He knew God personally and deeply. God redeemed him time and time again in, in, from trouble and war. See, as the people of God in a later point in history look back to the redeeming acts of God for his servant, King David, they recall the commitment, willingness, and delight God had to redeem David and his people over and over again. And the instructions that previously may have become strict guidelines to just obey they gradually become life-giving words because they are words from a redeemer, a deliverer who rescues and who wants what is best for them. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, um, I visited a World Vision project in Zambia. Um, these projects um, are long-term projects. Uh, they take 20 years, generally. And the aim of these projects uh, in these countries is to deliver uh, a rural village out of poverty. Um, and not only 
um, pull them out of poverty, but to equip them over the 20 years to be self-sustaining so they don't return back to poverty. And so they're giving them tools, teaching them new things. Uh, in, in a way, you could really say the work of World Vision was delivering and saving these people out of poverty. And so the instructions from the workers of World Vision, they, they weren't easy things. They were hard things, teaching them how to build wells, teaching them how to maintain them on their own, learning different agricultural practices, learning to start and sustain businesses that they hadn't done before in their context. A lot of this work is foreign, difficult. And while at times I'm sure it was burdensome, on the whole though, the community would have and did see these instructions from these fellow Zambians who, were, who, who wanted the best for them um, as life-giving, yeah? Following those guidelines came from a place, though hard, of life-giving delight. See, when instructions come from a deliverer, when instructions come from a redeemer, they stop being obligations. They become the life-giving way forward. Friends, the same is true for us. Only for us, we don't look to King David. We look to a greater David, don't we? One who in every way was blameless, innocent, who had no faults, willful or hidden, who was perfectly pleasing in God's sight. And yet this greater, perfect David gave up his life to rescue and redeem his people. See, the first David received redemption over and over again. This greater David, King Jesus, gives redemption. See, for the Jesus follower, following God's instructions is so much sweeter, so much more precious because Jesus delighted so much in us that he would die to redeem us. His instructions, even when they expose, even when they uncover, even when they refine and warn, are life-giving words from a life-giving Savior. Dear friend, we can know God because he desires to be knowable. He reveals himself through creation. He reveals himself more fully, more beautifully, more profoundly through his word. And it's a precious word. It's a sweet word. And if we let his word do its life-giving work in us, we will see God all the clearer so that day by day, month by month, year by year, we can get to know God better, appreciate him more fully, and know him more deeply. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask for three things, to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and to follow you more nearly. Help 2024 be a year where this prayer is answered abundantly for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray.